0: a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After Nine on 93.1 CFIS FM.
1: On the way later in the show, we will have Alan Wishart and an interview he did with Kyle Anderson from the Prince George Spruce Kings, plus Sharon Hurd in discussion with uh, MP Todd Doherty. But to start today's program, it is last Tuesday morning's front
2: burner. From CBC News. Like you can see, I, I, I like I said, I start pull on, but this is my little, you know, my little castle. You
3: know, I want you to meet my my a man house. named Derek Black. Derek doesn't have a permanent home, and right now he's living in an encampment in Moss Park in downtown Toronto. He recently gave our producer Ali Janes a tour of the large tent he lives in, or as he calls it, his castle. My
2: castle. I got my bed. which you, you can see it's a, it's a air mattress. So I'm not on the ground. I have my radio. I have everything. I have my bike, I have my helmet, I have my coolers, I have juice, I have another tent ready to go. Generator, music, water, and everything costs me. Nobody. Everything I do down here, everything I have down here, I pay for it. And you know, also, it would be unfair for the city just throw away what I work for and all my money I spend storage in the garbage. It wouldn't be fair. And that's what I'm fighting for.
3: Derek is one of over a dozen residents of encampments across Toronto, who are suing the city for the right to stay in the parks. In mid-July, the city tried to dismantle the Moss Park encampment, but have since postponed any evictions. Officials were worried about safety risks and sanitation, especially given the threat of COVID-19. According to a statement from a city spokesperson, over 150 people who were camped around Moss Park have now been moved into hotels, shelters, or interim housing. But Derek and other residents say they won't leave unless
2: they're given long-term housing. I'm not fighting for any money or anything. The only thing I'm fighting for is for everybody to have their own keys and I to have my own key. And there are a lot of people out here who, who are sleeping on the ground, sleep in the corner, you know, very, very vulnerable. So all I want for them to do, everybody to be free, no police buggers, us, and let we live our life.
3: The Moss Park encampment in Toronto is just one of many across the country. Since the start of the pandemic, they've popped up in Winnipeg, Edmonton, Vancouver, Edrickton, just to name a few.
2: The tent city that was on Port of Vancouver property is now in a much more residential neighbourhood.
4: The camp is taking control
3: of city of Edmonton. Eviction orders were handed out to those living in two camps at the south end of the
4: Disraeli Freeway.
3: For many housing advocates, the growth of these encampments really captures the complexities and challenges of the homelessness crisis in Canada. And right now, in the middle of the pandemic, they see an opportunity for lasting change. Today, I'm joined by Leilani Farah to talk about all of this. She's the former UN Rapporteur on the Right to Housing and the Global Director of The Shift, a housing rights advocacy organization based in Ottawa. I'm Josh Block. This is Frontburner. Hello, Leilani. Hi, Josh. So, first of all, there, there's no national data on how many of these encampments there are all across Canada right now. But even just right here in Toronto, I mean, I went for a run this morning and passed by four different parks where people were sleeping in tents. What do we know about the number of these new encampments across the country?
4: Yeah, well, we don't know the number, there isn't any official body. Responsible for counting the number of account- encampments across the country, which is a problem in and of itself. But you know, most uh, people I'm speaking with, and these are actually city officials who who do care a lot more than you might think about this problem. Um, but they're saying we cannot stop the encampments from um, arising. Every time we try, we you know we'll house some people, but we're not ha- able to house everyone um Mm -hmm. and uh the the population just keeps growing so it's not good news tell me more about
3: why we're might be seeing an increase in these encampments during the pandemic
4: so shelters tend to be pretty packed places right so in the face of the pandemic we know that you have to physical distance so what shelters did rightly um they said okay well we've got to separate out our beds so you're taking let's say a shelter that's got a hundred beds and you're moving those beds six feet apart where you have limited space so you may go down from a hundred beds to let's say 30 beds or 35 beds so where do those 70 people go? there haven't been adequate provisions to ensure that they are housed somewhere and also because people living in homelessness feel unsafe in shelters in the midst of this pandemic. They're fearful about contracting the virus and an encampment offers them um, more space, obviously, and an opportunity to um, perhaps, you know, self-isolate uh, uh, if that's what they want to do or, or need to do.
3: Well, you know, the c- concern about catching and spreading COVID was something that Derek Black, who we heard from in the introduction, expressed to us as well.
2: And the reason why I choose to come to, to Moss Park is because of the covert and I didn't want to take it from outside to my mom who's an elderly lady so i decided to come out here and build a camp with my girlfriend because of the covert overfed victor too a lot of people have it there so i rather both of us out here and you know cool and free and you know everything so that's why we choose here
5: and Eleni,
3: what does what Derek's saying say about the way the pandemic is affecting the lives of the homeless and, and the precariously housed?
4: Oh, I mean, people living in homelessness are really having to look after themselves. That's clear. And trying mm-hmm. to navigate this, um, the virus and their own personal realities, which is really tough, right? So he's making tough choices. Mm-hmm. He's trying to figure out how he can stay as healthy as possible so that he can continue to see his mom, right? That's, those are tough choices without being provided the supports that he might need to actually make that true and real and viable. So for example, when we, the, f- the first clip of Derek, he he described his living circumstances. I have my
2: coolers, I have juice i have another tent ready to go
4: what he doesn't have and i understand this about moss park is clean running water access clean running water that should be provided by the city um properly serviced portalettes or toilets and sanitation stations should be on site i mean if we're serious about ensuring as few people are infected by this virus as possible. That has to include homeless people. And that means where they've set up an encampment, services have to be provided so that they can protect themselves.
3: So so these encampments are are springing up across the country. How would you characterize the, the typical response by city officials?
4: A lot of cities just try to sweep them away, evict the residents don't engage residents in meaningful consultation they often engage the encampment you know without actually having a solution and a long-term solution for the residents
5: Uh, they don't trust uh, the organizations and everything else for the housing because they figure it's going to be the same thing like last time they're gonna put them in the housing they're gonna lose all their belongings and uh, then after that they get kicked out and put back out on the street how
6: do you feel when they come along and try and clear you out why? I'm not bothering
2: Seclusion, in a sense, um, uh, I'm an addict, so society says this is where we belong, and, and so be it.
4: Most people don't just choose to live in an encampment, uh, and and you know if they could afford to live in a decent apartment, that's just a myth. Some people living in homelessness choose not to live in shelters, this is true, and would prefer an encampment, but that's because of the shelter system and the rules and regulations that are um, really not suitable for people living in homelessness. Um, But in terms of encampments, a lot of cities, basically their position is to remove the encampment, and that's actually contrary to international human rights law. There is a human rights way to deal with encampments. Oppenheimer park out in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver did engage in meaningful discussions with the residents and their representatives on several occasions. In London, Ontario, the, government, the city government is allowing encampments to stay. They're not trying to evict them, and they've been providing them with basic services. And, you know, that's a that would be a high watermark. I want to reiterate, none of this is cool in terms of ensuring access to adequate housing for people in a way that's consistent with human rights, right? It's just—it's failing. (laughs) It is failing. Uh, That being said, if people are going to live in encampments, cities really need to make sure that those encampments are as healthy places as possible, right? And that means ensuring basic services, especially in the midst of a pandemic.
3: let's talk a bit more about, about Moss Park specifically. The city has offered Derek and other residents of the encampment interim housing or places in hotels or shelters, and the, a City of Toronto spokesperson told us in a statement that since April they've moved more than 600 people from 43 encampments to safe spaces inside. And they also stress that the move is done with dignity and a plan to support the client's needs. They say that they have specific outreach staff who do wellness checks with people sleeping outside. But our producer, Ali, did hear some concerns from people at Moss Park.
2: How, how secure is that? How secure is
3: this is a man named Richard Dixon, and a woman who goes by Chili, who lived in the park just until recently.
2: I have friends who are 30 year intravenous drug users. They were moved to Deep Scarborough, Jane and Finch, where there's no safe injection sites. There's no resources for my friends. So my friends have to travel to come down here to go inject drugs at the safe injection sites. Like, this.
4: It's it's a mandate. It's traumatic. When it, when people when people say the most stressful things in life is is separations, um, death, and and moving. You guys move us all the time, eh? Either from this shelter to that shelter. You know what? We also got to move from to go get something to eat. We also got to move from the fact that hey, you guys don't want us here in this area right now, so we're gonna move over there. We're always moving.
3: Another concern we heard from Richard Dixon is about the temporary nature of these accommodations.
2: I'm coming back to the park. They put me in the Victoria Hotel. I Don't get it twisted. I love it. It's beautiful. It's nice to have your own room key, you know, to go in, you know, you know your clothes are safe. But, but, but the out. point is missed. You don't just, that's a band-aid. That's just a band-aid, temporary fix. What happens when that lease is up, when that contract with the government is up? So you're going to take me from... Homeless to put me into a home to kick me out back on the street. What? Does that defeats the purpose of what we're doing?
3: Here. Leilani, these concerns we just heard—you know, worries that some people are being sent to community they don't know that are, that are far away from resources, and that this is just a, a temporary solution. How common are they in uh, you know, across the country?
4: Yeah. So those are absolutely common um, complaints and concerns by residents. You know, what's always so amazing to me is that residents are experts in their own lives and that's so clear like what was just articulated in that clip was we need to live close to the services that we rely upon Hmm. right i mean that's just such a no-brainer and if you really engage with residents in a meaningful way they will identify in the most modest way that's my experience and you know i was rapporteur for six years I've, i've met hundreds and hundreds of people living in homelessness and encampments in many parts of the world. And my experience is that residents do know what they need. They often have very uh, modest and viable solutions. And uh, I think that governments need to really listen to residents and, and take on board their suggestions.
3: We also heard from people who said that you know even though they were grateful for the food and the shelter and amenities at hotels, they were frustrated about the lack of autonomy that they had there. Here's one man, his name is Zion. Uh,
6: the hotels uh, it's basically like, I don't know, it's, it's too controlled.
2: it's like a jail. like we're monitored. Uh, you can't have people in your room. You can't have your girlfriend over. You gotta be by yourself. you' gotta be locked up at 12 o'clock till whenever in the morning they be there for bed check. They come in your room whenever they want.
3: That, that feeling of not feeling uh, free or autonomous that Zion talks about there, is that something that, that advocates and government officials consider enough?
4: Oh, absolutely not. You, you know, it gets for me, a lot of this gets to the real heart of the matter. Hmm. I actually think, overall, most of us have a discriminatory attitudes toward people living in homelessness including government officials i think in this country there's generally a sense of like oh we should provide charity to people living in homelessness that they're charity cases they are absolutely not regarded as rights holders Hmm. right so when we're fashioning remedies for homelessness governments aren't saying enough to themselves okay like i have obligations as a government anyone exercising government authority has international human rights obligations to implement the right to housing so that should be the starting point people living in homelessness are experiencing a prima facie violation of the right to housing there's, there's no other way to understand homelessness right it's obviously just clearly a violation of the right to housing and so they are rights holders i have obligations as a government official I better do something to ensure they have access to adequate housing. And that that whole train of thought is not happening. I mean, it sounds
3: like a, this question of, of, of not just housing, but housing with dignity is something that might not be considered. Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, that's probably right. And, and was it Zion who said um, this issue of autonomy, personal autonomy, that homeless people are subjects of their own lives, that they should have a say in how their future looks in how they emerge from this pandemic. We shouldn't compromise our values. We shouldn't right. compromise our humanity and our dignity. And it shouldn't be it shouldn't be compared to well at least you have at least you have this. It shouldn't be compared to at the worst of minimum.
2: It's like a jail thing because you have to turn off light whenever they want, you know, it's, certain things require a lot of things require. A lot of people don't want to be tell what to do. You know, they're free out here, so that's why they choose to be out here. Oh, Miss still out, even if nobody inside. So, this is yours, and this is mine, and that's what I want. On 93.1 CFIS
1: FM, that is part one of last Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. We'll have the second segment of that in a moment here on After Nine.
0: Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After Nine on ninety three point one CFIS FM.
1: And now, segment number two of last Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. Now, some people might say, "Well, look, you know,
3: right now we are in this crisis situation. You know, cities need to secure safe accommodation quickly for a lot of people, um, and that it, that it is necessary to put people in to provide people with, um, you know." safe sanitation beds running water uh and even if it is a band-aid solution isn't that the right thing for cities to be doing right now
4: yeah i mean i think that's a really good question and and i have some sympathy for that for sure especially early on like in march when you know middle of march this is hitting slamming canada right and city governments were scrambling they realized what a stay-at-home policy might mean for people living in homelessness, right? Mm. They realize, and I think they were kind of left on their own. I I think there was a a lack of uh, national-level federal government leadership. Uh, I would have expected a directive from the prime minister himself, to be honest, saying very clearly, provinces, cities, we absolutely have to protect our homeless population. We have to do something, you know, quickly rights-oriented, you know, etc. I mean, the federal government has recognized housing is a fundamental human right. So I would have expected that uh, kind of leadership, and I, I that, that just wasn't forthcoming.
3: Well, I want to ask you about about federal leadership. I mean, to what extent do these encampments that we're seeing right now lay bare Canada's failure to address the housing crisis prior to COVID-19? Yeah,
4: of course. And it's the failure of the government to, the national level government to recognize and implement housing as a human right. Um, you, you you can't allow homelessness to unfold to the extent that it has in Canada. I mean, the conservative estimates are two hundred thirty five thousand homeless people, and that's a stubborn number. That's not a number that's come down in Canada, and in some places homelessness has increased. So absolutely, there's been a failure. The government has recognized its failure, however. I mean, Mm -hmm. they adopted a National Housing Strategy Act last year, and that act recognizes housing as a fundamental human right. They are supposed to appoint a federal housing advocate, and a housing council. And those two new mechanisms, I'll call them, um, could play a really significant role in ensuring that the, the country does better in terms of implementing the right to housing and addressing homelessness.
3: You know, you have written about how the Canadian government has a big opportunity now to, to address the homelessness crisis in Canada. Can you give me, you know, in a concrete sense, How do you want to see the Canadian government, at all levels, work on addressing this issue now?
4: One of the things that all levels of government should be looking at is what we might call distressed assets, or available assets. They don't have to be distressed. So, for example, uh, Airbnb units that are standing idle and vacant um, because of lack of tourism now, as well as assets that are failing. For example, office buildings might become distressed asset or might be put on the market because people aren't working from offices, Uh, shopping malls, parking lots. There's lots of possibilities and use those to address the housing crisis and making them available to those in need.
3: Is that something that has actually been tried anywhere?
4: Absolutely. In fact, just recently, both the cities of Lisbon and Barcelona have made moves in that direction. City of Barcelona Mayor Calau has said quite clearly that any unit that has been unoccupied for a year or more will be expropriated by the city and will be used for affordable housing. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, shes it's a stick. In Lisbon, they're using a carrot approach with Uh, short-term rentals, not just Airbnb, but all short-term rentals, they're trying to negotiate with the owners of those units to get them to lease them on a long-term basis and at affordable rates. But, you know, (laughs) if you look around the world, homelessness is growing in most countries, but there is one leading light And that's Finland. The Finnish system is financed by public funds and Finnish slot machines. And the idea of housing first is
0: quite simple. When people are homeless, you give them housing first. A home right away, instead of lots of paperwork and temporary accommodation.
4: The only country in the world that has really reduced homelessness and is on track for ending it by 2027, I think. So in Finland, they realized, for example social assistance rates were too low and that was part of what was causing homelessness people were falling into arrears and and, and self-evicting and then falling into homelessness and that's something that the federal government has some control over right uh, we're seeing in the middle of the pandemic how much money is available when we needed to be available so uh, that's part of it
3: hmm. just thinking about what you've been saying you know clearly these encampments are a symptom of, of a much larger problem across this country. What happens if, if there aren't deliberate steps taken to try and address this issue in a way that you're talking about?
4: Well, I mean, we already have a housing crisis, uh, and we had one before the pandemic. I'm quite fearful about what's to come. I'm worried about current tenants who have negotiated with landlords to pay their rent back, you know, they can't pay their full rent now, but they'll pay it back over time. I'm worried that people won't be able to do that and they will then face eviction. Um, And all of this will just lend itself to increasing levels of homelessness, of course. But what equally concerns me is the federal government needs to recognize the connections between things and ensure that they are paying attention to the big financial actors who have liquidity now, who who are not suffering, who have deep pockets, and who could really mess with our housing market unless they're regulated properly. And that's what we saw happen in, uh, after the 0809 global financial crisis or Great Recession, as it's called. And so I'm really uh, terrified uh, that the government won't take the necessary action and i think there's just not a good news story at the end of all of this if all of these different pockets and groups of people um and their housing needs aren't addressed
3: lani thank you so much for speaking with me today it's a pleasure out to the federal government departments that oversee housing to respond to the issues that Leilani raised. A spokesperson for Ahmed Hassan, the Federal Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, got back to us with a statement. It says that the federal government provided an additional $157.5 million in funding to organizations supporting people living in homelessness during the pandemic. The funding covers expenses like PPE and renting more spaces to house people. It also mentions that the government is working on establishing a federal housing advocate's office at the Canadian Human Rights Commission. The job will involve monitoring the outcomes of the National Housing Strategy, something that Leilani mentioned in our conversation. Finally, the spokesperson added that, quote, We recognize that there's more to do. We're ensuring that the government will play its role as a full partner in ensuring every Canadian has a place to call home. That's all for today. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening to FrontBurner.
1: On 93.1 CFIS FM, that is last Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stick around more on After Nine in a moment. This is After Nine on
0: Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM.
1: Alan Wishart caught up with Kyle Anderson from the Prince George Spruce Kings last week to get us up to date on what's going on in the world of uh, junior hockey.
5: Yeah so the BCHL's come out and we're, we're looking at a December 1st start date uh, for the league and you know it gives us the best opportunity to, to hopefully avoid a second wave and you know if that is going to be the case in our province uh, hopefully that's that's passed by that that point and Um, you know it also aligns with the the next NHL season too so I think it really it's it's a great date to have and and to actually have a date now is uh, is very important to to everyone in the league and you know it's able for us to go after our our ticket holders and and our sponsors and kind of get them set for for what a season might look like. So do you have any idea at this point on when the schedule itself will be out? Uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure. Um, I think it's going to depend on when the uh, Provincial Health Office is able to come back with our plan and say that, you know, you're, you're probably pretty close here on December 1st or, or not. So, you know, whether that's going to be mid-September or, or late September, we, you know, we don't really know right now. Uh, everything's so fluid. Um, you know, it's been one of those situations. I think we've kind of coined the term shoveling fog around here. It's, it's impossible to do, but uh, you, have, you have to try to do it. And um, So, yeah, that's the, that's the hope. Is as soon as we have a schedule, we'll be able to really push forward in, uh, in certain things. And I'm guessing to some extent, Wenatchee is still sort of the wild card in this because they're the team that isn't in BC. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so having a, having one American team, you know, is a is a challenge for our league, and you know, definitely at we'll some other leagues around. They've got six jurisdictions they got to deal with, and you know, for us, only having two is 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 a good thing. The, the negative side, maybe a bit to that is. You know, I believe Chelan County, where Wenatchee is located, uh, just went back into phase one of their reopening plan, so they're struggling a bit. But, you know, there's I know there's plans, plans in place for them, whether the border opens or not, or, um, for them to play this year. So I don't see them taking a hiatus from the league, which is a good thing. And, um, you know, we'll just, again, wait and see what, uh, what that entails. Now, City Council
0: recently announced that the kin centres would be opening But they didn't, they said CN Centre, Wilderness Concrete, and the Elk Centre, which doesn't really enter into the equation really, were not going to be opening, have you guys got an agreement with the city in place then basically?
5: Uh, we've had discussions and we're always in constant discussions with the city of Prince George about the status of our building uh, you know I think it's it's public knowledge now that we're we're hoping to start an extended training camp at the beginning of October um, so you know that's kind of the, the aim and, and hopeful that again we've got a an approved plan in place from the provincial health office at that time and we're able to do that. So, you know, I think that we'll be able to work out of the Kin Centre for a bit if we need to, and, and that's necessary. But, you know, I feel that, uh, that based on, on the, you know, the temperature of that meeting and and the discussions that were had um, over the openings of the Kin Centres and keeping the other ones closed is you're going to see a demand for ice time, especially if the fact that uh, ice time's availability is going to be reduced because of extra cleaning measures. You know that there's going to be another arena needing to open um likely to be the cn center just uh, for you know staffing purposes i think for them being over or being there um but I, i have full confidence that if we're happen to play december 1st to start our season that you know we'll be in our building and we'll have been in their building for at least two weeks prior to that
0: have there been any even shall we say background discussions with the Cougars about if for some reason rolling isn't open, maybe being able to work out the schedule with
5: them so you guys can both play out at CN Center? No, there's been nothing at nothing at that time. Um, I think it's it's not something we wanna get into, it's not something we wanna we wanna have to look look at. Um, you know, I think it, it, at the absolute worst-case scenario, which I still don't see happening at all, it might be a Kin One, uh, a Kin One look. But uh, again, with a reduced capacity, it's uh, it's it's not a, a crazy difference for us, really, when you when you look at the bigger picture. So we're talking about
0: two months then until the beginning of the training camp that between now and then, you guys have got something
5: else on the go. Yeah, so our, you know we're modifying it this year, but our hockey schools, uh, we're giving it a go, starting on August 17th to 21st for week one and 24th to 28th for week two uh normally they get uh, about three hours on the ice and an off-ice session every day but unfortunately this year with all the regulations and the venue switch over to kin one which is where it'll be held um, it's going to uh, be just one hour a day for for our groups um, but they'll get five hours of ice time in the week uh we spots have filled up you know really fast for it so we're we're full in a couple age groups already and we've got a little bit of space in others for for different weeks but uh definitely been popular again just the, the Spruce Kings are really wanting to you know provide an opportunity for the public and, and for the kids of Prince George, the youth around Prince George to get back to the activities they enjoy. And you know we're really excited to be able to to put this on here in, in the coming weeks. So Mike Haas, the coaching
0: staff and everybody I'm guessing they are still trying to line up players and everything now that they've got a tentative start date for when the season's gonna start and working back from that about when training camps going to start so uh, have you got an idea from mike on how many play- players there might be at training camp
5: yeah we're probably going to keep it small i think a lot of the teams are going to are going to do that this year um it's just you know when when you look at at the at the needs and and you know you can't play games right now um still via sports uh, hasn't re- moved us into phase three of their plan. And it, once that happens, exhibition games can happen. So we're hopeful to have a schedule of those uh, throughout those months as well. But, you know, I, I'd assume that the regular size roster will be all we have, maybe a couple extra local players here here and there if, if we need them. But, um, you know, I, I don't expect a, a major training camp and that's never really been the Spruce Kings way either. So uh, pretty much status quo with the players that we've committed to and recruited and acquired over the last uh, Season, so um, that's probably going to be the roster we look at uh, when training camp starts. So
0: the one thing the Crusaders have missed out on to some extent is the usual was spring identification camp, they could you call it.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Our spring camp uh, was unable to go, and we're in the same boat as every other team in the in the league. In, in that sense, so there was a lot of uh, you know I think lost revenue that, that people were really concerned about. Uh, you know, lucky for us, our show home lottery sold out um, for the first time. So. It was a very exciting time for us for that to happen and, and financially we're, we're doing all right so um it's it's obviously an you know important uh, important thing for us to have those identification camps especially for the northern players to get to see them and show them uh, what we're all about and um you know we're, we're looking forward to you know probably a little later than we're used to holding one but uh, we're looking forward to holding one in 2021.
0: So, without being, not being able to hold the identification camp, but still wanting to get the word out to players around the north, do you see the Spruce Kings having more of an online presence in terms of putting more videos, maybe, up with interviews with the coaches and players,
5: just to let people know what the Spruce Kings are about? Yeah, I mean, I think our whole messaging um, around social media and all that, all that planning is is to do more video content for sure. Um, You know, I think everybody in the north pretty much knows who we are and. Uh, that's who, that what we hope that that people know, and and that's how how we want to sort of frame ourselves as well. And you know, we, we treat our players right, and anyone that's played here in the last few years can attest to that. And with you know, we eat in good restaurants, and and we stay in nice hotels when we when we go on the road, and. Um, You know, I think that's going to just continue and that's the the way we want to plan Obviously, it may be a little different this year, but we're hoping to be back uh, fully to normal for for next season And you know people are and players want to come here and they want to play here and uh, you know That's what we want to keep up
1: Now
0: one thing I just thought of if a player had committed who played for the team last year They committed to play NCAA hockey this season and they get the word that no we're not going to be playing this year can they still come back and join the spruce kings again
5: i mean technically they're they're there's no rule against them, you know, coming back. So they so they could possibly. Um, all indications that we have is that NCAA will be going ahead, whether it's a little bit delayed too or not, uh, we're not sure. I know a, a few conferences are just playing within their own conference. They're all bus trips, so they're able to go and they're able to do that. Um, so, you know, so again, it's it, it's an interesting thing in hockey. You know, we've, we've had the discussions internally too that, you know, hockey's an, an, interesting, an interesting set of circumstances. In the whole, you know, COVID nineteen situation, um, and the trickle down effect could be could be you know really crazy. If there's certain players that aren't coming, aren't going to school this year, and they're coming back, and then there's recruits that aren't coming in, and you know what do you do? Do you, do you send some of your younger players back to play in academies and, and develop there? And and do that but I, I don't know it's it's going to be interesting to see how, how it kind of goes and you know it's definitely going to trickle down but you know I think we're seeing now all the leagues are pretty much on the same page when you look at the American Hockey League or the NHL the American Hockey League East Coast Leagues on the same page And then the CHL leagues and BCHL are all in December now for start dates. That's all come out in the last week. So, um, you know, I think that that everyone being on the same timeline is going to help. It's just going to be a matter of what college hockey really does. Kyle, I've
0: got a feeling you and I are going to be chatting again before the actual training camp even starts.
5: Yeah, there's definitely a possibility. I mean, everything uh, everything changes every day. Like I said, so uh, we're definitely excited to get going and and have a, conc- or, you know, a hopeful, concrete date and plan in in place. And you know, hopefully the provincial health office is uh, is going to allow us
1: to do that. That is Alan Wishart and Kyle Anderson from the Prince George Spruce Kings, an interview Alan did with him last week here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Stick around when After 9 returns, Sharon Hurd with MP Todd Doherty.
0: You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: And here is Sharon Hurd and her conversation with Todd Doherty, our local MP, from last Tuesday afternoon's Senior Moments Program.
7: I can't help but want to start with we. Do you really? Do you want to start with we or
6: <laughs> absolutely? You with we. I mean, that is, uh, you know, I think unfortunately, I think Canadians are left with more questions than answers when it comes to uh, uh, to the, the, the we scandal, the uh, yet another scandal. I guess
7: I would imagine that some people think they're entitled to do these things without uh, uh, repercussions.
6: Well, even our former uh, ethics commissioner says that there's a there's a blind spot that our prime minister has a blind spot when it comes to uh, his own, um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, ethical scandals. He he, uh, he appears to feel that um, uh, he's invincible and that the, the rules don't appear uh, don't uh, apply to him or his friends.
7: Yeah, yeah, he's he's entitled, and so this is like billions of dollars, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's um, you know uh, uh, the timeline
6: is is something to the effect of uh, in uh, in March, uh, uh, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau. Um, and, uh, her mother-in-law, Margaret Trudeau, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and the prime minister's daughter, Ella Grace, attend a WE event in London on, uh, London. You'll remember that, um, uh, uh, uh Trudeau, Sophie Trudeau came down with COVID at that yep. time. Yeah. Um, but that was a WE event that they were at. They were reimbursed for their travel expenses and, uh, uh, and were paid for by WE and then, um, just a short time afterwards, uh, less than a month later, uh, the conversation uh, between the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister take place uh, regarding uh, some new measures to help uh, the students uh, students out during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Morneau himself has uh, two daughters that are involved with Weave himself. Um, and uh, um, uh, no sooner than that i believe uh, minister eng uh minister of small business minister mm-hmm. mary eng uh, met with me encouraged them to actually put a proposal in um and uh i guess the proposal was uh, uh sent in april 9th um and at no time did minister Morneau or the prime minister feel that they should uh have to recuse themselves um uh, and uh, essentially it was um, about uh, a, a $500 million uh, program we're uh, going up to almost a billion dollars. Now, uh, the Prime Minister uh, testified last week um, after the Finance Minister and uh, other senior officials testified uh, and uh, but the Prime Minister's testimony last week his story has changed a little bit he said that on May 5th he uh, he put the halt or the, the brakes on the proposal because he knew there might be maybe a bit of a perception problem um, but yet <laughs> it was approved uh, just three weeks later by the cabinet which he is chair of I mean he's the be all the end all of our government mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he's the highest seat in the house, mm-hmm. and and yet, even though he felt that there may be a perception, uh, a perceived conflict, um, he didn't accuse himself, mm-hmm. and you know, and and essentially awarded an organization um, that was facing some very serious uh, uh, financial uh, uh, um, complications, Their their chair and their board of directors had some. Uh, serious questions regarding the financial uh, setting of, uh, of of we and uh, and indeed uh, when the chair was questioning uh, Mr. Kiel- the, the Kielberger brothers as to um, you know uh, getting some answers uh, the chair was asked to step down or resign mm-hmm. uh, and then was, and then was fired mm-hmm. um, and then subsequently uh, most of the board I, I believe that most if not all of the board. Uh, uh, step down uh, following suit this is a very very questionable um, uh, uh, situation that, that the prime minister and the finance minister find themselves in and the senior officers of both the PMO and the, and the finance minister's office well, you know it's, uh, it's very very uh, very interesting
7: I'd never heard of we until all this happened what does we stand for
6: well, it's a, we as a, uh, you know, it's a, it a, uh, was a youth charity. I, I guess it was about, uh, you know, I, I haven't, uh, I, I don't really, um, I think it's about, it was about empowering youth, and mm-hmm. um, I think it, it had um, uh, some uh, great aspirations, and, I, and there's no doubt that there are uh, youth and and uh, children across our country and, and across the world that Perhaps benefited from it, um, but the, the reality is, I mean, uh, you know, regardless of what we is, mm-hmm. uh, and they have very close ties to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and mm-hmm. his family? And, I mean, I think now the latest is dates back to two thousand seven, perhaps, um, and uh, um, yeah, it's very, uh, very scandalous. Um, yes. You know, the Prime Minister says that. Uh, they're not friends with the Kielburgers They're not on a personal basis yet. Um, his wife and one of the Kielberger, uh spouses, wives, host a monthly podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been videotaped on stage uh, calling each other friends, and mm-hmm. they seem very chummy. And mm-hmm.
7: uh,
6: you know, and, and the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is that his family has been paid. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's family has been paid. Almost a half a million dollars in excess of half a million dollars that we know of um, since she has been elected prime minister, um, and it's not just to uh, it's not just to speak; it was to to attend the uh, the after events to uh, you know where there's big name sponsors and what have you. Uh, mm-hmm. So really, be uh, there as uh, on on a true name, and mm-hmm. so that the Kilbergers could take full advantage of of the, uh, the Trudeau, I guess, um, uh, moniker.
7: But how greedy can you get? I mean, I don't think I would have an issue if they were volunteering their time and using their name to help uh, um, raise funds for a youth um, but not receiving any kind of money. To me, this is just another indication of the greed um, it, it, that's uh, so obvious in the world. Um, you have an opportunity to use your name to help others. You don't expect to be paid for it.
6: Well, yeah, I think that, that you know that goes without saying, Sharon. You and I would would think that um, um, that you know we we use whatever opportunity we can to to, to promote those organizations and those yes. those groups that yeah. we feel are, are doing We don't. I, I speak at um, mental health uh, events all over mm-hmm. the. Uh, all over the country, and and have uh, internationally as well. Mm-hmm. I don't expect to be paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think the other part that's really um, that's really troubling is is uh, uh, you know that there are other speakers, guest speakers, that have come forward uh, that um, were asked. If uh, they had asked if, uh, if they get paid if they could get get paid or get reimbursed mm-hmm. and uh, they were told no, they don't reimburse mm-hmm. their speakers at all. Um, yeah. you know and, and I, again we find out that this is uh, this is mm-hmm. something that has taken place after Prime Minister uh, the Prime Minister was elected or, uh, Justin Trudeau was elected as Prime Minister in 2015. Mm-hmm. you know but he himself in the previous prior to becoming Prime Minister, he had charged uh, uh, other other groups, I think school groups or faith-based groups, uh, to to go and speak while well, he was a, 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 an MP. And you know, again, I, I think um, uh, I just think that that is uh, that is wrong, and yeah. um, just speaks volumes I, for me.
7: It's very wrong, and uh, and I and so it's. Is the Prime Minister going to have to resign over this? I mean, I certainly think his mother and and Sophie and everybody else should return the money that they uh, received for speaking. Uh, That's the least they could do. If they want to raise funds to help um, an organization, why would you take money? You're taking money away from the funds from those kids. That's what you're doing.
6: Well, I think that that is the the biggest Part of this case, uh, of this issue here, is they're they're saying now that um, well, first off, they said we was the only organization that uh, was able to deliver the program that uh, that was being yeah. uh, that there was being planned. Which we know that we have a very capable uh, uh, public service uh, uh, group, and that, uh, you know that that deliver these programs. that already have built-in mechanisms to deliver these programs right across our country, and yet. The, the whole idea was what they were trying to sell uh to Canadians was that this is the only organization uh capable of doing this uh, this uh this program to the scope of it. And because of yeah and because of the scandal that is that the the official opposition has brought forward. Um, you know, uh there are thousands, tens of thousands of, of students across the country um, that will not be receiving any of this, uh, this funding. And it's all the fault of, of, uh, the, the official opposition because we thought, or because it was found out. Really, really, the fault lies squarely with, with Prime Minister Trudeau yeah. and his finance minister. Will they be held accountable? I'm not quite sure. We, we will do our very best. I mean, Parliament, mm-hmm. uh, is not sitting, uh, you know, uh, has yeah. been suspended. Uh, and the Prime Minister, it, you know, again, it's at the, the whim and whimsy of whatever the prime minister uh, chooses to do. We're we're uh, I'm we're booked to go back next week for mm-hmm. uh, one sitting of the COVID, the special COVID committee. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, you know, the reality is, uh, the RCMP, uh We're we're hoping we'll look into this. The lobbying commissioner, uh, we're hoping is looking into this. Uh, the ethics commissioner is definitely investigating this. This mm-hmm. would be the third uh in the investigation of, of this type that um that the prime minister is involved in he was wow. found guilty twice before
7: yeah
6: um and you know uh, and when is enough enough yeah uh, and canadians deserve better
1: From last Tuesday afternoon's Senior Moments program, Sharon Hurd in discussion with Todd Doherty, our local MP here on Prince George's Community Station, CFIS-FM, back in a moment to wrap here on After 9.